going to be reading this morning from Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I'm going to read the first 12 verses, though the whole passage is printed in your bulletin, and we'll get to 13 through 18 uh, when I get there in the sermon. This is God's Word. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of children, the children of man, are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have all perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because what is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. You may be seated. There are two realities that we all face. And one of them we all know about, and another one we know nothing about. The one we know about is death. Uh, Solomon writing says, the same event happens to all. And and the event he's speaking of there is death. Death happens to all. The other reality is summed up in those words, time and chance. Time and chance happen. Uh, We don't know the future. We are uncertain about what will be tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so we all know that death is coming, and none of us know what will happen tomorrow. 
And we live all of the days of our life, every moment of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every year, under the reality of those two things. That is life under the sun. In verse 1, Solomon begins by talking about the uncertainties of life. And we would use a word for these, uh, and that word would be providence. For the things that we would call uncertain, God doesn't know as being uncertain, but rather they are in His providence or in His hand, as Solomon would say, in the hand of God. What is providence? The Catechism defines providence this way, that it is uh, the work of His providence is His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all His creatures and of all their actions. God bringing all things that happen to an end. His sovereignty over those things. Last Sunday, we heard Brian preaching, and he told us that part of uh, the problem of living in a broken world is that, that things don't happen the way they should. That, that righteous people end up getting the reward that the wicked should get, and wicked people sometimes get the reward that the righteous should get. And that it was confusing and perplexing. Now notice here in verse 1, Solomon is limiting what he's saying. He says, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. It's not that the wicked and their deeds are not also in the hand of God, but Solomon here is speaking these words for the purpose of comfort. For, for the purpose of those who would be God's people when the things that should happen don't happen, how do we live in light of that? And, and he says to take comfort in these words, that our lives are in the hand of God. We may not know what's going to happen in life. The picture here is of love or hate, those being two ends of the spectrum. We, we don't know what's going to happen, good or bad. You don't know what will happen to you tomorrow. Uh, you don't know what will happen to you by the end of next week. We just don't know. But we do know in whose hand those things are. And in whose hand we are. We are in the hand of God and our deeds are in His hands also. And we're, we're encouraged to take heart because of that. Life is sort of like the great philosopher Forrest Gump once said that life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. But you know who's behind it all. The hand of God, that phrase occurs uh, a number of times in the Old Testament, but uh, one that came to my mind immediately was the Proverbs. Proverbs 21.1 say this, that the king's heart is in stream of water, it is in the hands of the Lord who turns it wherever he will. And, and, and that is an encouraging verse because the argument that Proverbs is making there is from greater to lesser. If the heart of the king and what he does is in the hand of the Lord, then surely all of the actions and all of the deeds and all of the other people, lesser people like us than the king, are also in his hands. An application that I thought of when I was pondering this was this. 
we can never look at the outward circumstances of life, either our lives or the lives of others, and make an assessment of whether God is for or against, whether He is with or not present with that person. You just can't look at the outward parts of life and say, oh, good things are happening to that person. God must really be with them. And you can't look at a person that has struggles and suffering going on and say, oh, God must be against them. He must not be for them. You can't. You cannot know by looking outside. Now let's put providence for a moment on the back burner because Solomon moves on in verses 2 to 6 to talk about the ultimate illustration of, of that uncertainty, and that is the certainty of death. Death comes to all. That is certain. We just don't know when it's coming. But it is a universal reality. The mortality rate is 100%. Everybody will die, righteous or wicked. It says that in verse 2, that it's the same event happens to all. It's certain. And that idea of happens is, is sort of a, it, it's, it's an accident. It's unexpected. It's unplanned. Does anyone here have their date of death already on their calendar? You have it down. Like in 20 years from now on Wednesday, the, 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 I'm going to die. No. It happens to us all. It is, as one author called, the uncertain certainty. It hangs over all of humanity. The wages of sin is death, and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, it lingers. It just sort of hangs like a fog over life. It doesn't matter whether you are right or wicked. It doesn't matter whether you're good or evil, clean or unclean, whether you make sacrifices or don't make sacrifices. It doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. Death is no respecter of those things. It comes upon all. It's also in verse 3 we see evil. Death is an evil. Death was, is not a part of the very good creation of God in Genesis. Death is contrary to that. It is, as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, it is what he would dub the last enemy to be destroyed by Christ is death. It's an enemy. It's evil. But it's also deserved in verse 3. It's deserved. It, it says here that the hearts of man are full of evil. Here we see a, 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 a speaking forth of the doctrine or the teaching of total depravity. Brian had a passage last Sunday that had a verse in it that spoke to the same thing. Ecclesiastes 8.11 where we heard... Because of the sentence of evil against, uh, because of the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, because God's punishment on sin is delayed, because sometimes the wicked get away with it and get the reward of the righteous, doesn't mean that happens forever. But sometimes, because that happens, their hearts become even harder. And, and here in our passage today, it says that they are fully, man's heart is fully evil. It doesn't mean that we are as, as absolutely wicked as we could possibly be all the time. It's not an utter depravity, but it's a, it's a whole depravity. Every part of us is fallen. Shortly after the fall in the garden, no, not much more later than Genesis 6-5, we would read that every 
intention of the thoughts of men's hearts were continuously evil. Those every uh, only and continually kind of summarizing that everything, all of us, the whole of us and everything we do is stained by sin. It's all stained by sin. I uh, brewed the coffee this morning. Got up early and I was brewing the coffee and I thought this is a good illustration of sort of the idea of total depravity. What if I had snuck something in to the coffee this morning? Right? If I'd have just put a little something extra into the percolator and turn that thing on. It, it, was, it would be through the whole brew, right? You would have all drank it, and, and you would have all been uh, corrupted by it. And that's, that's what sin has done. Sin has percolated its way through the entirety of humanity. And, and it says here that the result of that is that there's a madness. I mean, there's just a madness to sin. When you get to the very core of sin, fundamentally, it is just stupid. It is foolish. It's sort of like, uh, you know, when you watch the Avengers, if you're an Avengers fan and you go and watch the Avengers movies, but you'll understand even if you don't. One of the things in the movies that you just do not ever want to do is upset the Hulk, right? You, you don't want to upset him. And, they, and every time in the movie, he starts to get like a little bit anxious or a little bit worked up. People are kind of like, whoa, whoa, settle down. You, you know, you don't want to mess with the Hulk. Who wants to mess with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Who, who wants to sin in front of the one who is omnipresent and who knows all things, including the secrets of the hearts of men? Who wants to sin before the one who will one day judge everything and make every wrong right and will take notice of everything done that was right and secret? Who, who wants to mess with him? There's a madness to sin before God Almighty. So, death is certain, it's evil, it's deserved. You can read the rest of 4, 5, and 6, but the points there are that evil takes away our final hope. There, there is, it's a dead end, pun intended. There, there's no return from death. It's, it's the end. God will judge, and then there is no more hope. It is a closing of the door behind the soul of man. Uh, that the dead know nothing, there's no knowledge, there's no reward for knowing things, and they're not known. There's no memory of them. And then it is the end of our participation in life. At death, we have no longer a share, as verse 6 will say, in life. There's nothing to be a participant in. And that sort of transitions to 7, where we'll see in a moment how do we share in life. But first, jump back with me or forward, actually, to verse 11. Verse 11 picks up the, the subject of uncertainty and the mystery of providence, the unknowns of life, as, uh, that outcomes are not as expected, the ironies of living, that righteous getting the, 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 the reward of the wicked and the wicked getting the reward of the righteous. And it uses sort of a poetic way of saying it. It says, the swift don't win the race. The strong don't win the battle. Uh, that, the, um, that the wise and the intelligent and the knowledgeable don't get what you would think. And that life is frustrating. Life is frustrating. How does God do this? How does His providence work? 
Um, first, let me confess, I don't know. Uh, I do not pretend to have even the slightest knowledge of the ways of the Lord in terms of how His providences work. So if you were to come and ask me, what's happening in my life, Tony? Can you tell me what God is doing? I don't know. I know in general because of the things that the Lord has revealed to us about His ways, but, but there is a mystery here. But how does God's providence work? Well, it doesn't work this way. It's not as if the swift are running and God sort of grabs the back of the jersey and holds onto it. Or it's not that the strong fail because, because God comes along like that funkle, your fun uncle, and, and says to you, you when you're little and carrying a backpack, is that bag heavy as he leans on it? In other words, God is not this manipulating, you know, burning of the ants with the magnifying glass type of God, uh, controlling all of His creatures that way by being sort of a cosmic bully. Rather, His providence works typically through ordinary means. There's a word for this, it's called congruence, the do- or concurrence, the doctrine of concurrence. Don't get caught up in the fancy words, but it... It shows up in our confession, and listen to what it says there. It says, although in relation to foreknowledge and the decree of God, first cause, all things must come to pass immutably and infallibly. In other words, God is sovereign, and and everything that He decrees comes to pass. He is the first cause. Yet, by the same providence, the same power and sovereignty, He orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. In other words, God uses second causes, things that to us appear to be just ordinary parts of life, events and things that happen. Or as the author here, Solomon, would say, time and chance. Right? That really good reformed word, chance. But it appears under the sun as if God just simply uses time and chance to bring about His sovereign will. Because He does ordinarily work His providence in that manner. And we see the result of that in certain scriptures. The the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. In other words, you might have a great plan for your semester, you might have a great plan for work, you might have a great plan for building a a home, but at the end of the day, it is the Lord who will establish that plan, and and it'll kind of fall out through ordinary or things that appear to be very ordinary. Time and chance, but God is sovereign, and His sovereignty extends over time and chance. And we don't see how it works. It's sort of, if I can use an illustration here, it's sort of like asking someone, how does a car work? Right? How does a car work? How does a car move? And someone says, oh, it's easy. You have this little thing called a key, and you stick it in and turn it, and the car goes. Well, that's true, but it's pretty much not how a car goes, right? Uh, well, there's these little pedals on the floor, and you, you mash them, and, and one makes it go forward, and one makes it stop, and that's, that's true, but it's sort of a simple... That's not really true. I could just make some pedals and put them on the floor, and they're not going to go anywhere. Right? There's, a, there's an engine under the hood that makes a car go. How does God's providence work? 
Well, sometimes it looks to us like there's just this key, and if you do this, this happens. Sometimes it looks like there's some pedals, and if I'd mash them this way, this happens. Sometimes it looks like uh, there's a steering wheel, and if I move it this way, it goes that way. If I move it this way, it goes that way. But the ultimate reason a car goes is because of the engine that is unseen and under the hood. That's sort of, in a way, how the sovereignty of God works its way out through what we would call providence. But at the end of the day... Man doesn't know. It says man just simply doesn't know his time. He doesn't know when it's going to happen. It's like that game. You've seen that game where you can play now and you get a pie, you put whipped cream on it, put it on the handle, and you have to come up and turn the wheel and, and put your face on the thing, and, and you don't know, you know if you're going to be the one that gets the pie in the face and gets the song and stuff. Like, the next person comes up. You don't know when you're going to get the pie in your face. It's like being caught in an evil net by a fisherman. So then what do we do? How do we live in light of this? And that's what verse 7 through 10 get to. How can you make the best use of our time in an evil, in a world that has evil that falls upon it? And the answer is, Verses 7 through 10. And we've heard this before. This is the sixth time in the book we've come to a section that looks like this. So if, if you're thinking, haven't we read this before? You know, go and eat and uh, eat your bread with joy and drink your... Haven't we read this before? And the answer is yes. This is the refrain or the chorus of the book of Ecclesiastes, if I can put it that way. Do you know, during the Jewish feasts, certain books were read. And, and I wish I had the list and couldn't find it in time, but, but during this feast or festival, the Jews would read this book. They'd read Ruth. Uh, during this feast, they'd read this book. And, and during the feast of Sukkot, which was the feast of tabernacles or booths, they would read the book of Ecclesiastes. And that, that festival corresponds as, about as closely as you can get to what we would call Thanksgiving. The, the festival of giving God thanks for the harvest. It was a celebration time. Why would you read? Could you imagine if you went off and said, hey, mom, dad, uh, we're, we're hearing the word of God at our church on Ecclesiastes, and they read the book of Ecclesiastes during what would have been for them Thanksgiving. I suggest we read it for our Thanksgiving this year. And you get to read all the things that we've been looking at about life under the sun. Oh, joy, right? The high point, or maybe the purpose of this book, are these refrains of joy. That they're meant to happen in the midst of darkness. God's people are meant to find joy. God has called us to be a people who rejoice in the midst of a broken world that we are not immune to. Jason DeRoche, one author called Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon, the preacher of joy. He said it's like Philippians of the Old Testament. And then he goes on to explain that because if you know anything about the book of Philippians in the New Testament, where was Paul sitting as he wrote it? In a prison. He wrote the epistle of joy. It would make sense then that Solomon, living under the sun in a fallen world, might write about joy. So how can we rejoice? What is, where do you find joy in it? 
there's this wonderful thing about each of these refrains, and that is that each one sort of expands or says something different than the ones before. And in this particular refrain, you may have, you may have caught it. It's right there in the beginning. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. That's, that's the addition to the sixth joy refrain. There's one more to come in chapter 11. God has already approved what you've done. And I would posit to you this, that there's sort of hidden in that phrase perhaps a statement about justification, about being approved by God. Now, obviously, Solomon didn't have the knowledge of Christ and what he would do to make God's people right in his sight. But, but here, he's foretelling that the only way you're going to make sense in life and find joy in the midst of all the dark chapters that exist around us is to understand that God has approved you and what you do already. How this applies to us is this, that being right in the sight of God, therefore we can rightly enjoy all the things that He gives. But not being right in His sight, we will wrongly use all of these things that he gives. And he gives some examples. He says your meals, your possessions, like your garments and the things you own, your wife and your work. And, and the reality is this, if you know Christ and are approved by God in him, then you can eat your meals with contentment. Then you can wear your clothing and have your possessions and, and enjoy that comfort. That you can in, uh, that you can have the companionship of your wife, that you can have the contentment and the commitment of work. But if you don't know Christ, what happens is suddenly all of those things are used differently in your life. You use food and wine in wrong ways. You'll use possessions to, to gain significance and security, but they can't provide it. You will even find that it affects your marriage and that you will look to your wife or you will look to your husband to fulfill all these things that really God intended Christ to fulfill. And you'll look to your work to bring satisfaction and, and, and reputation and provision and it never will. Let me tell you this little story at the end. This is our close. Verse 13 to 18. Solomon tells a little story that really impressed him. He said, I have seen also this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, and though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Some believe that this is a, an accounting of a story, a true story that Solomon heard, they Often we'll say it's found in 2 Samuel 7. The problem is in 2 Samuel 7, it was not a man, a, a poor man, a wise man. It was a, a poor, wise woman. 
It wasn't a king, it was Joab. Um, and the details of the story don't match up. And you would think if it was a true story, Solomon would have put some of the details in to verify it. But he tells this more maybe like a parable. And uh, John Gill, a pastor and theologian of the 18th century in England, uh, has this thought on it and some other authors do, and that is that this is more of a prophetic parable. It's pointing to something yet to come. That the little city is the church the people of God. And that the great king is Satan. The word used there for siege works isn't really siege works. It's the exact same word used for nets earlier. That that he is the enemy of the church seeks to ensnare and and to trap. He comes, as, as John would say, to steal, kill, and destroy. And then the poor wise man is Christ who comes to deliver His people. But He doesn't come as you might think He would come. He doesn't come in might with an army, but rather He comes in wisdom, as the wisdom of God. Uh, He doesn't come as a rich man, but rather He comes and delivers His people out of His poverty. He is this poor and wise deliverer who comes. But what's the response that he gets. He was despised. And his wisdom was not heeded. Isn't that the exact thing that happened to Christ? John chapter 1 says he came to his own, but his own rejected him. And that they turned away from him. And instead of receiving his wisdom, declared that he was folly and he was mad. And so he brings then, in verse 17, a word that is quiet. The word there, quiet, is rest. Better to have a word in quiet than the shouting among rulers. I read that and I thought, isn't that the, the way that Christ speaks to His people? He doesn't yell at them, but He says, come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and, and I will give you rest. And He speaks about having a light burden for His people. Then there's a, a restfulness. Christ usually doesn't come barging into a person's life, yelling and screaming at them, but rather through the quiet work, uh, the effectual work of the Spirit and the Word comes and, and whispers and talks into the lives of His people, delivering them from sin. Isn't that the reality for most of us, that Christ came more as a quiet whisper than as a loud ruler demanding that we submit to His Lordship? I want to close with this, that if, if we're delivered from, I just want to close with this because by, I think it sums up well the passage, their very last word says, one sinner destroys much good. And that was the case with Adam, wasn't it? The one sinner, Adam, destroyed much. We'll let Paul in Romans 5 bring us to a close today. I'm going to read about two men. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam and his sin brought great tragedy on humanity. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass. For many died through the one man's trespass. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I believe at the end of this passage, we might rightly see that Adam is the one man who brought much destruction. And Christ is the wise and the poor man that God sent to deliver His people from the madness and the darkness that that sin brought. That He would approve them as they turn to Him in faith, repentance of sins, and, and cling to Him and receive from Him the deliverance that He brings. And that He speaks upon their hearts and urges them and invites them and pleads with them to come to Him in the quiet of their hearts. I believe some of us here sit in that today. We don't know Christ and we hear that, that voice of quiet and we know the frustrations of life and we keep trying to enjoy and find meaning in all these things that God never intended to do that. And, and Satan continues to have his way with his snares in our lives. Christ implores us to come this day to receive Him. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for Your Word that brings life. Thank You for Christ. Thank You that He delivers a people. Father, we ask that uh, You would stir upon our hearts. For those of us who know Christ, Lord, that we would not continue to turn to the things of this world, but that we would forsake them, cling to Christ, and understand and live out the reality that, that if you have blessed us in Him, will you not give us all things needful? And for those of us that don't know Him, uh, Father, may that voice within, the voice of your Spirit through your Word, may you draw us to Him. May we know the deliverance from these worldly entrappings and snares, from the evil of this day, from the uncertain certainty of death that looms over us, that you would free us and conquer that enemy in our lives and capture our hearts to yourself. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.